about word studies, okay? Um, word studies is an aspect of understanding the Bible. At its basic level, the words are the components of a sentence, okay? And sentences should convey a complete thought. I have numerous students uh, with Liberty University where I, I teach a class from time to time that are not great at conveying a complete thought and they still put a period at the end of a sentence. Um, but the, the, the word forms a portion of a sentence to hopefully convey a complete thought in a paragraph that conveys an idea um, that you're trying to advance. So when we talk about word studies, we're not just going to study a word, we really want to see how that word fits. What does this word contribute? What does this word mean? And Gordon Fee suggests that a word study or the aim of a word study is to ask what this word means in this context. Not what this word means in another context. Not what this word means without regarding the context. What this word means in this context is what we should be asking if we're doing biblical hermeneutics. What could some of the dangers be of studying this word? For example, we're gonna talk about the word reckon or translated as reckon or consider it in Romans 6.11. What could some of the dangers be of studying that word not in that context, but still in the biblical context. What could be dangerous about studying a word in the biblical context, but not necessarily in the context of the paragraph and sentence? It won't make sense, or it'll, it'll tell you something different. Okay. It may not make sense at all, okay. or it may tell you something that it's not meaning in that passage. Okay. For example, um, we'll look at some more later. I was trying to come up with one other than reckon. That was not a, a great one to do. Um, but if you want to think of the face and the concept of face, if somebody's in if we look at someone's face and we're studying it to look at someone's face, meaning the, the look and literally in their appearance, and we talk about someone's face and the appearance of it, that is drastically different than let your face shine upon me. The context of the blessing that given to Aaron repeated over the people, may God be gracious to you and bless you and make his face to shine upon you. The word face there is used as a bigger concept of God's blessing than somebody's appearance, right? So if we study a word in the wrong context, we can still understand what the word means, but it doesn't mean that in that paragraph. At, at a more basic level, what does the word run mean? Oh, something goes. All right, I saw somebody back there shaking their arms as in a person goes. A car goes. A machine goes. Okay. You can have a run of good luck. You can have a streak of good luck. 
A run of good luck. What does the word run mean? You can use it as a verb as I'm, I'm going to go run some copies. And that doesn't mean something goes. It means you're making something go. The copiers are going. The copiers going. Okay, I think we've covered most of the meanings of it. So to study the word run, if, if we're going to use it as in a streak and it's used in the sentence that he's had a run of good luck, to go and to study how a person moves their body from point A to point B, understanding that it is to strike toe, heel, toe in a striking pattern, that you need to be breathing as you run, to run appropriately is to not carry extra baggage. To run is a picture of so many different things. There are runners is of no value if the sentence is about, I had a run of good luck. So also, it is incredibly dangerous to study a biblical word disregarding the biblical context. And when we do word studies, we're going to talk about a lot of the fallacies coming up in a minute, but I don't like word studies. And I don't like most people that do word studies. Correct. I'll just be real. I don't like most of the people that do word studies and that really concentrate on word studies. And Jacob said, wait, you picked this one. I picked it because I wanted to counterbalance anything that could come out that could ever encourage you to be a word studier. Don't be a word studier. Study the word, not a word. Study the words of the word in context. Study the word as it is reflected in its context. And we're going to talk about how we do that and some of the common errors I've got somebody that I've been dialoguing, interacting with for a few years who makes their entire Bible study method a method of finding a word and deciding to study what the Bible has to say about it. So they might decide to study what the Bible has to say about trees. And they generate an entire theology of trees based upon a concordance in the word tree and the way that the Bible treats trees, disregarding in many cases, the sentence in which that word tree is in or the point of the word tree being taught. Uh, um, but credible knowledge of the way a word is used, incredible disregard of the way that word is used in that context. So when we do word studies, there is value to word studies, Okay. There's tremendous value to word studies in helping us understand key concepts. Um, there is incredible value in doing word studies, but we need to be very careful that we study that word in that context and avoid some of the fallacies there. Okay. By the way, one of the ones that I'm going to give you tonight is probably one that you have heard before. Um, and uh, I am very confident that I have made some of the mistakes of uh, inappropriate word studies or fallacies in my word studies and probably repeated them not only in a class like this, but from the pulpit at some point. 
but I will stand in good company with that uh, in the book that I'm going to give a few examples of and that, many, that is kind of the key book on this. D.A. Carson, an incredibly bright and brilliant, I would go as far as saying probably one of the top five scholars of Christianity at this point living, um, remarks in his own book, Exegetical Fallacies, not only about his dean's mistakes with his exegetical fallacies, but his own mistake in his own PhD dissertation with an exegetical fallacy that he still graduated with. And his own mistake in some of his other works. So he looks and says, I'm not pointing the fingers at others while not pointing at myself. I'm pointing my fingers in every direction. And I'll do the same tonight uh, on myself. If I knew where I was wrong on them, I would own up to them. I'm not aware of one that I'm wrong on right now, but I'm confident that I have been and I will be. So, You've likely heard some of these, um, and Carson takes himself to task. There's an English-only fallacy. Uh, Duvall and Hayes come up with these seven fallacies, four of them. I think Carson takes, really goes to kind of looks at four primary, if I'm remembering right. But using the Duvall and Hayes book, and I think these are, these are good ones, he, they talk about the English-only fallacy. We often forget that one word in the original language can have be translated into many different words in the English language. Okay. So, for example, the word gune in Greek means women. The word gune in Greek means wives. It is the same word, two different meanings. The context normally specifies whether the word means women or wives. And obviously a wife is a woman, but not every woman is a wife. And there is nothing that speaks of age or having been married when it says women or or woman there. So we need to remember that one word in the original language can be translated into many different words in English. And all of us in this room are reading first from the English. So, there may be the exact same Greek or Hebrew word behind that same, that there's different English words at times. But not, so what does the, the pastor who wants to make a point say? The, the gospel is the dynamite power of God. What Paul is saying here is the gospel is, is the dynamite power of God. Well, Did Paul know about dynamite? No. Paul didn't have dynamite. He hadn't even watched the Looney Tunes versions where the dynamite blows up the roadrunner. He didn't have a clue about dynamite. So was Paul saying that the gospel is the dynamite of God? Not at all. We get our English word, power and the power from dynamite, maybe there, but Paul's not saying that. So we need to be careful of reading our understanding of word. This is both kind of the root fallacy and a time frame. It back in. And by the way, like the example does start breaking down because dynamite does not bring good things to the people on the receiving end of it. Even the roadrunner or Wiley Coyote doesn't do well when the dynamite explodes. So to say that the gospel is the dynamite of God is not to actually convey the intent of that passage. It sounds awesome. It makes you sound really smart. It connects with people until they start realizing, oh, wait, it doesn't blow people up. 
Yeah, it blows up sin. Uh, but. <laughs> There's there's an appropriate way to to do it. Um, I don't think I've heard any or ever heard a pastor just do it absolutely brutalize it. But I have definitely, and it's been a while since I heard it to like be like, okay, how, how did you clarify this? Now that I'm aware of this fact, did you actually do the fallacy here, or do I just remember having heard this so many times about how the gospel is the dynamite power of God? And what they mean is well-intentioned. They don't mean God blows people up. What they mean is that the gospel is the power of God that changes things dynamically. Um, There you go. There's your play on. But we have to be careful reading back into what Paul said based upon what we now understand. That's the time frame fallacy. Uh, they, Duval and Hayes note that there's something, some concepts and ideas that were in an original Greek or Hebrew culture that we don't carry today um, and that we don't have a good word that conveys over, but the much more common fallacy is us reading back into somebody else's time. And one of the ways that we do this is to keep mindful of the big bridge that we have, the 2,000 plus years that we have from the time that the original scripts of, or autographs of Scripture were written and the language and culture that they were in. So to keep in mind the different context. And if we're thinking through that, we can think pretty quickly, oh yeah, Paul didn't have dynamite. Okay, so he probably didn't mean it was an explosive power. So what did he mean here? That can help us, help clue us in um, with that. The overload fallacy. They describe this as putting all of the meanings of the word into it at one time. We've done the example of run. So we're studying this and the text says that he was running and then all of a sudden we're going to understand, well, he was making copies, he was making a machine work, or, or, or the, if the system continued to operate while driving while, or while jogging. It doesn't make sense in our world. It doesn't make sense of what the text was saying. The word does not mean everything within the semantic range of that word in a moment. Okay, semantic range. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? I didn't give you a glossary of key terms. If I did, semantic range probably should make it to it. So semantics, like if somebody says... Uh, it's just semantics. It's like little details, right? So semantic range would be all the details. You're good. Good job taking it apart. I think you're you're on the right path. Range, check it. I would say it refers to all the different the range of the different meanings a word may have, and so one word could have a semantic range that overlaps potentially with another word, so they could be very similar and mean something to simple. Mean the same thing in one situation, but could also mean completely different things in different situations. Yep. Let's use run and jog for a minute. Run and jog have some overlap in their semantic range. Where's the overlap between run and jog and their semantic range? What is it? What are the ideas that are being overlapped? Physical activity, cardiovascular, moving from point A to point B. Okay. 
We've already described the, the other things that semantic range of run can be. We, I mean, if we pulled out a dictionary, we might could find another one or two. But we've by and large described it as to make a system or a machine operate um, or to do exercise. What about jog? What are some other things that jog can mean? What are some other ways we can use that in a sentence? Okay. Jog your memory. To yeah, to bump into something. So now you guys are giving me the semantic range of the word jog. You've given me the semantic range of the word run. There's an overlap of their semantic range where we talk about somebody that is jogging or running and doing exercise. And we understand those in our culture by and large. What would we say is the difference between jogging and running when somebody is exercising? Speed. Speed. Yeah, okay. running is faster than jogging. And this is a pretty nuanced discussion because somebody that is jogging is running. But is somebody that's jogging, running, jogging? Maybe or maybe not. And it's very nuanced here. Now, just to add to the levels of complexity, we're going to think about when we do a word study, this is happening in another culture 2,000 years ago. And we're not even sure if somebody that's running is jogging. Okay? Because of the semantic range. There's semantic overlap. But... The overload fallacy, to come back to it, because I got ahead of, on the semantic range, the overload fallacy is everything that jog could mean. When I see the word, when I hear the word jog, I'm going to understand it to mean everything it can mean. So when Jason talks about he was going for a jog, that means he was bumping into papers. That means he was putting something into somebody's mind. That means he was doing physical exercise. It doesn't mean that. Go back to fee. A word study asks what this word, jog, means in this context, I'm going for a jog. So when we do a word study, it doesn't matter what it doesn't mean in that context. We have to be guilt, not guilty of overloading it, okay? The word count fallacy. Uh, Daryl Bach says that word meanings are determined by their context, not by the word counts. And what he means is, though, and they give an example in Galatians chapter 3, verse 4. In fact, uh, Jacob, you already got your Bible open. Uh, read Galatians 3, 4 for me, please. And are you reading from ESV? Yes. Somebody read for me from the KJV. Just pull it up on your phone if you don't have a paper KJV with you. And somebody else go to the New Living Translation for me. Beth, you got that? Thank you. All right, Jacob. Three, four. Yes. Uh, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Okay, the key word here that we're going to talk about on word count fallacy is the word suffer. In the ESV, it's translated suffer. Did you suffer so many things in vain? KJV, I think it's going to say suffer as well. Julie? Have you suffered so many things in vain? Okay. New living, we there yet? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? Okay. Have you experienced so many things for nothing? This is a, a, a translation philosophy difference between the paraphrasing and the thought for thought of the New Living Translation and the literal, in this case, of the KJV and the ESV. The word there is normally translated suffer. Is suffering a positive connotation or a negative connotation normally? 
negative. Uh, Duval and Hayes say in every time that Paul uses the word suffer, it has a negative connotation except here. This is where we can maybe hear the tone. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And, and as he goes on to talk about the, receiving the Spirit and walking by faith and, and God doing things and, and you've, th- these changes have happened, he's not using suffer here as in like all of this was bad for your life. He's saying, did you experience? The connotation is, did you undergo these things that, were, that happened to you and it's not a negative connotation. But every other time that Paul says it, it means painful, brutal, negative context. But let's remember the way a word is used, where it is used, determines the meaning of that word. So in this case, yeah, it, there, there's a, a little implied what's going on here. But just because a word was used 80 times out of 90 in one way does not mean it's 90 times out of 90. Just because it was 89 out of 89 before it got to this point doesn't mean that word is still used that way. I'm not going to talk about jogging papers into a stack very often because I I think I would talk about arranging them. I don't know what I would use. I probably would not use the word jog there, but would it be appropriate for me to do so? Yes. Could I do so? Yes. So the way that I use jog the majority of the time tells you the way I use jog the majority of time, not what I am guaranteed to use jog to mean in English every time. This is why word studies are dangerous because we study Paul's usage of the word jog or we study John's usage of the word world and we start thinking that this is always only a negative or always only a positive and the context shows you the meaning which is why we study words in their context. Now we got to understand words enough to understand the sentence that they're in, right? Um, but we study words in their context. So is that the example of just a bad translation? I, when I read through Galatians 3, I'm not against understanding that as suffer there, um, but my ESV even gives me a little footnote that you could also, or experience. Um, and, and maybe this is a passage if we, I th- I'm going to try to allocate some time for the end of class. This might be a passage that we can look at that Greek word and see if it is always and only elsewhere in the entirety of scripture translated as suffering. And if it's always and only translated a hundred other times as suffering in scripture, then I tend to think that we should still translate it as suffering, but we should let the context of the argumentation of Paul here informed that it isn't necessarily a negative thing to have undergone that change. Um, it speaks to the semantic range within the Greek term itself, right? It's, we're starting with the Greek term and that has a semantic range and it could be translated a variety of different ways. And so um, but here at a surface level is where it is more helpful to, uh, to hear the tone of the New Living Translation. Um, okay. Which, by the way, one of the things that I'll, I am big on is I like looking, when I'm looking at key terms or concepts, I like looking at multiple translations to see how multiple translations handle a concept or a key term. 
Doesn't mean that I'm going to always buy that somebody got it right on there. But if I see every translation treats the exact same word as, you know, we'll go with, the, with gune, treats it as wives, there better be really strong evidence for me to translate that as women on my own, even though the word can mean the same thing. The same word can be translated two different ways. Okay? Um, I, I look at what more experts are. And the danger of word studies is the, when you start on them, you feel like an expert pretty quickly. And, you know, you are not even, you're starting to get dangerous to yourself. Um, so, word count fallacy is that, um, that the word meaning is determined by context, not word count. Okay. Um, the word concept fallacy assumes you know everything about the subject because you know a lot about one word of the subject. Okay. Uh, the, the concept of the, the church and it's like, hey, I've studied the word ecclesia. I know that 85% of the time when the word is used, it refers to the local church. Um, I know that the other 15%, it refers to the universal church or the church across all places and time. Uh, I've studied the word. It means ecclesia. Or those ga- it refers to a gathering. I understand the root of it. Therefore, I understand church because I understand ecclesia, which is a word translated as church. You don't understand church because you understand one word that is normally used to convey that concept. And then there's the selective evidence fallacy, which really doesn't necessarily, I think, fit within all the rest of these because this is I only select to remember and articulate the stuff that supports what I want it to support. This is the I began with an agenda, I found my supporting evidence, and I hold on to it. That, that's a little different, I think, than some of the other ones. This one starts to deal with a little bit of motive and just uh, bad study goals, not just bad study practices. Okay. There's others that you can come up with. Uh, Carson, in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, talks about, starts looking into the way that the grammar starts doing it and people misunderstand and miscommunicate the grammar that's more dealing with the sentence structure than an individual word, but a, a verb does have a tone, and it does have a, you know, there's concepts, there's plural, there's singular, there's people passive and active, all of that, mood, person, tone, etc. So words do have those, but I'm not going to deal as much with those. Okay? So how do you select a word to study? Now that I've warned you about all the ways that you can get it wrong, if you were going to do a word study, and just don't major in them because then I won't like you, and I want to like you, um, I like most of you right now, so um. <laughs> good you caught that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a study on Jason's semantic range for how he uses the word most and what does he mean by the percentage of that. Yeah, is it 51% or, you know, is it only Jacob that I don't care for right now? Like, who is it? You know. All right. In the context of eight people. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but don't assume that you know everything about my likes and dislikes because you've understood my reading of the word most. <laughs> so how do you select words to study? Um, and I, I think this is, they're good on this. I combine this with some others. Look for the important words. It's really probably not valuable for you to study the definite or indefinite article. Probably not really there. You know Look for the big words. Look for the important words. Look for the theological words. Look for the ones like justification. 
Look for the ones like redemption. Look for ones that seem important to the context of the sentence. There's no hard and fast determination of that. Look for repeated words. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Somebody without going there, tell me what do we generally find in the early parts of Matthew chapter 5? Blessed. So if you're going to study the Sermon on the Mount, and you're starting your study of the Sermon on the Mount, it would probably be valuable. Yeah, we can understand what a peacekeeper is. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are the merciful. We can, we can understand merciful, but if you're going to study the Sermon on the Mount, it'd probably be valuable for you to understand what it means to be blessed. Do a word study on that, which, by the way, is the basis in many cases of Randy Alcorn's book, Happiness, and he talks about the relationship between happiness, delight, um, joy and how that relates to blessing and how God is the source of all of that, okay? Look for repeated words. Look for the puzzling and confusing words. What are the words we don't understand? In this case, Galatians chapter 3, verse 4, why is this word translated as suffering when it could be otherwise translated by some other translations as experience? Or see the words that are different, that even seem to convey a different idea. Experience versus suffering definitely has a different tone, more so than jog versus run. So those are probably good words to study if you're going to look at multiple translations. Um, When I am wanting to see a bunch of translations at the same time, I do all my work from the computer on that stuff. I use a website called Bible Hub, and I type in on Bible Hub, I look at one verse, and it'll shoot out 24 different translations in a row for me. And I just walk through those and see what what looks different. And I always expect the message to look different than the King James Version. Um, but, you know, when I see a difference in the NASB and the ESV in a, in a word, I'm like, eh, there's, there's probably something worth studying there because those are pretty similar in their translations normally. Mm-hmm. And it says, you experience so many things in vain. It yes. really was, is in vain. Yep. Mine says experience, not so Yeah, it has the experience. Um, anybody have a NASB, New American Standard? It's probably going to translate as experience as well. Since the American Standard did, most likely the New American Standard did not change from that. The NASB was an awesome translation. They just quit printing many of them. The reason we went to the ESV as the church, I used to preach from the NASB, but you couldn't buy them anymore at Lifeway, essentially. So that's why I went over to the ESV, not because I actually thought it was better, but because I wanted people to be able to get a hold of the Bible I was preaching from. I did it for you. Sacrificed my understanding of the, the beauty of the text and so much that I had memorized is in the NASB. Okay? The things I do for you as your pastor. That's why I only like most of you. Okay? <laughs> so, when you want to do a study, and we're going to get to this, we're actually going to have time to get to it. When you want to look up an English word, if you're doing it in a paper concordance, those things do exist for our younger generation. Um, there are books that are really big um, and that are not just software-based. Um, look up the English word, find the passage, find the number, read the entry. I should have put this down below in my, uh, in a different, or no, it is right here. All right, this is when you use a paper resource. Look up the passage, find the number, read the entry. We'll practice this in a minute. And the entry provides the semantic range. If you're using a software, I like to use uh, the software I use, I don't use the paid stuff uh, on electronic resources. Logos 
an accordance. I believe, I know Logos is a, uh, is a software that is a paid subscription base. They may have some free stuff. They're the biggest out there. I just don't read really well and understand really well from the computer. So I do my study from paper whenever I can. Um, so I don't use Logos, um, but it's the most popular one out there for pastors, I think. Accordance is another software-based. Step is a free-based uh, electronic one's pretty good. I use Blue Letter Bible, and I have that app on my phone. Um, one of our church members, I believe, like five or six, seven years ago, recommended it, and I was like, oh, I didn't know about that. And since then, I've, I pull that up fairly regularly when I want to see what a word is in the Greek or the Hebrew and the way that it relates to it, give it semantic range. Do I want to see if it's in uh, active, passive voice, make sure it got carried over, uh, what's the tense of the verb, what's the mood, all of those things. I, I'll look at that. So you've got paper resources, you've got electronic resources. But remember that, all right, when you're doing a word study, not only do you consider the semantic range and what your dictionary of biblical terms and Strong's Concordance and Vine's Bible Dictionary and your little Bible footnotes, not only do you look at that, but you consider the context. Context, 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 context. The closer the context, the better, right? What's happening near it, the nearest stuff to it. So it matters a whole lot more what's in that sentence twice than the way that word was used, if it's in the book of John, than the way that the word world is used in Genesis 1. If you're gonna try to determine what it means in John chapter three and you find that the word world is there twice there, it's probably better to understand the closer context instead of what Genesis 1 had to say about it, okay? Or light. Let, let's talk about Jesus is the light from John chapter 1. Does that relate back to Genesis 1? Absolutely, but let's study close context first, right? As we start bridging out in context, the closest thing is the word itself, the sentence that it's in. Beyond that, what's the next circle out? Talk about some circles out. Paragraph. Okay. Wouldn't it also be the book? Yeah, where you find it? Yep, paragraph, chapter, mm-hmm. book. They're using the same, same thing, they're using different chapters, but they're used a little bit differently. Yep, sometimes it can be. Old Testament versus New Testament. Yep, even before you get to that, there's another one that we've kind of missed. Author. When, for no further study than that, you need to let uh, Sam and Jacob talk to you about pop. Okay? You say pop for a soda. Mm-hmm. I say Sam will say pop as in like a family member. Okay? So, you want to know who's saying it. In addition to the context, as we think about it, it's more beneficial. It doesn't mean that Paul and Peter and John don't use the same word in the same way, but it's more consistent to understand that author and the way that used that word elsewhere in some of their writings. Most likely, it's better to see the way Paul uses the word justify 
than the way Peter does, although it should mean generally the same thing. But if we want to see it in Galatians, we'd be better off to, see, to study it in Romans than 1 Peter. I don't think justifies in 1 Peter, but just give it an example. Okay. So author, testament okay. is, is better there as well. Okay. What if it's the only use of that word in the Bible? I can't right now, um, but there are multiple, not a ton, and there's some of them have some level of significance. Jacob will probably give us one in a minute. You can look it up. Go for it. Levy's looking. Biblical words only used once in the original language. They are there. So how do you then determine what it means? You have it nowhere else in the Bible. The sentence will help you. You should generally know what it means there. But there is discussion on what the word translated as, typically translated as atoning sacrifice or propitiation means, that Jesus gave himself as an atoning sacrifice or propitiation for us. What if it's a big term? You don't always know those things. So how else could you try to arrive at what it means? I mean, you're already looking it up because it's, you don't speak Greek or Hebrew. But how do, how do scholars arrive at what it means in that case? Anybody got one for me yet? Gabriel, oh, Go Gabriel's ahead. greeting to Mary. Okay. The, the word he used, I can't pronounce it. It's big, long. It starts with a K. It's only used once. Okay. And is it, what's it translated as it mean? What's that? Is it translated in English as highly favored one? So I don't have that one in front of me to, to give it to you. But, all right, there's one. There, there's a couple others. Um, there's, uh, there's more that are probably used twice in Scripture than once. Probably twice as many. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. That was bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know. All right. Yeah, I cracked myself up. But how do you, how do, you do that? How do scholars arrive at that? translations, right? To see what they but do. when they, they don't want to work from other translations, I mean, they can see what other people did, but other people can be wrong. Other historical sources during that timeline, as best you can. That is, that is how, by and large, those things are done. But what could be dangerous about that? Okay, what if you have a big sample size? Sometimes as believers, we use a word differently than the world uses. Yeah. Brother. What do we mean by that in church? Any guy that believes in Jesus. And that I can't remember his name. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We mean that to refer to our brothers in Christ, by and large. So there are some unique ways in which Christians use words in our culture, and there it is possible that the same thing would be the case. But you would think that majority of cases, if it's a unique word used differently by Christians than by most of culture, it's going to actually be used more than once in the New Testament or Old Testament. So, 
there's not a lot that hangs on that. But. I would say absolutely so. Yeah. Um, so, yes. Um, so, but starting back to it, I skipped ahead. I think I hit that somewhere else in a minute. All right. Closer context helps more. For example, in Ephesians 4.29, uh, that, there's a contrast to comparison. I want to get actually some practice time, so I'm just going to blitz through this. Um, you could talk about uh, let no unwholesome talk. What does unwholesome mean? Uh, no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth except that which is profitable to bring grace and benefit those who hear. The concept of unwholesome in that talk is a contrast versus building up. So the context can help you if you're doing a word study on unwholesome. It doesn't mean half um, or partly. It means not beneficial in that context. You're able to see through the contrast what's going on. The subject matter. Um, helps or displays meaning. Uh, the example that the book uh, gives multiple times uh, or walks through is that the passage where uh, Potiphar's wife accuses Jacob, J- oh, not Jacob, J- Joseph, <laughs> Joseph of messing with her. And the word is translated, he was trying to make sport of me. Okay? Now, that concept can be translated elsewhere in Scripture as literally telling a joke, or we can kind of read that as make fun of, but the way in which she says it seems to suggest that there's much more sinister than he was trying to make fun of me. Elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about, I believe we read it in the last couple weeks, uh, was it, I believe it was Jacob that uh, owned, repeated his father's mistakes, forgetting to claim his own bride, and gets viewed as making sport with his wife. Okay? And they understood that they were married because of what they were doing. So obviously he was not making fun of her. There's a high degree of understanding when we, or a, a degree of understanding when we read Genesis 39, then we read the surrounding context that she probably wasn't saying he's making fun of me or telling a joke. But there's a huge semantic range to that word. So the context, the subject matter, the seriousness of the tone displays the meaning. The author's use elsewhere can display the meaning. We could look at, and we were going to look at Romans chapter 4, 6, 8, the word reckon and consider, but we're not going to do that because I'm going to save some time and get into some stuff. Historical context can also help display meaning. Um, For example, the Philippians were known from their time, and we found some stuff that basically talks about how proud they were, their citizenship. So when he talks about con- conducting yourselves worthily, he's got this idea of you, you understand yourself to be a good citizen of, of Rome. Now think of yourself as a good citizen of heaven. There, we can get some ideas from the historical, cultural context and other literature about it. Okay, it's often helpful, I've noted this, to use other translations. And if a word is only used once in the Bible, we can try to get meanings from where it's used elsewhere. Um, outside the Bible, but we got to be careful that because we do have our own vocabulary at times. So pre the internet and everybody having apps on their phone, this is how students of the Bible did it back in the day. Like back when you had to carry big books around to study passages, you know, with Lonnie's dad as a pastor, he probably never learned to use the electronic resources 
to understand the semantic range of a word, much less everywhere else it was used. He just memorized every place in the Bible it was used. Or he pulled out one of these gigantinormous books and looked and studied. Now, I'm so thankful for the way that the internet pulls all of that together quickly. All of you, multiple of you were like, I'm just pulling out my phone and pressing the button and I hold my finger on the word and then it pops up everything. That's better, okay? Um, but better doesn't keep you from the fallacies. It just makes you faster at them. Okay? That's how it was done. And for those of you that want to do paper, there is some value to, to some of the paper stuff, but I think the electronic resources are infinitely better. This is the only time that I go over to electronic resources is for concordance and Strong's numbers and the way it is used elsewhere. I, I don't read as well from them, but they are so much faster at this stuff. And you can copy and paste if you need to into it. That's a little practice. Um, the, as a FYI, um, as our deacons have looked at, there's a passage in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 is translated, and this is why I gave this example. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, if I can get there. Talking is in a passage about deacons by and large. The passage in the ESV, verse 10 says, Let them be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and household well. The word wives there in the Greek is gune, right? which I told you can be translated two different ways. What are the two different ways that it can be translated? Or wives. Context normally specifies. So in the, the verse that follows, that talks about him and the husband of one woman, that word woman, even if we understood the husband of one woman, we actually were talking about it, that we would clearly understand that to be a wife. Okay, that's very clear. Context specifies that. Context does not specify, actually, in verse 11. Because the concept of the word there isn't there. It's supplied. Because remember, there's times in the Bible that it's just wooden and we have to put words in to help us based upon our understanding. So, if anybody ever tells you that the Bible says absolutely 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is impossible to have women deacons, they're not working very well from the text because the text does not specify here in a way that scholars are beyond a shadow of doubt whether that word is translated women or wives. It's a guess. It's a hunch based upon the rest of Scripture and the way that we understand the rest of things. And the context provides it. But for somebody to come back and say, well, the Bible says there can't ever be women deacons because there's no place in there and it talks about their wives, the wives of women deacons. That word there might mean wives or it might mean women. Word? If it women, it would still be their women. Like the word there is not there. Uh, they added the word there? How do you know that? Because um, he studied it. I've, I know, but... I've at it. If, you, if you use a translation that has words in italics, it will help you. Um, does anybody's Bible have that in italics? The word there? I pulled it up on my phone earlier and it had there. Or pulled it up, I think it was actually the KJV 
um, on Blue Letter Bible had the word therein. Oh, there we go. The women. Yep. So the American Standard takes the concept that it is the women. It translates it as the women, not their wives. Which is clear. That is very clear. Yeah, NASB just says women. Yeah, NASB just says women. So, there are some, and when I grew up in church, I probably would have repeated as a teenager, the Bible says, very clearly. Sometimes when you do word studies and you start looking into things, the, the biggest thing to gain by word studies a lot of times is humility. Humility and what you didn't know and what you might not know is certainly now because you've expanded your understanding of the concept. It doesn't mean that you haven't gained anything. You've gained humility in some cases. You've gained some respect in many other cases for your brothers and sisters in Christ who understand the concept differently and they no longer seem to be out in left field as they were before. And sometimes you do gain something from a word study that is altering for you and that is just beautiful and the, the language is colorful and you understand it so much more vividly than you did before. I'm not against doing word studies. I'm against doing word studies not in their context. Um, and I'm against, in many cases, so many of the errors that come from word studies. But it doesn't mean you can't gain something. It just means be careful. Be careful, be studious, be humble when you work through those things. Any questions from tonight? <laughs> yes, but not a lot of them. Um, there's one or two keywords in most passages that are worth having studied or studying. And, and sometimes we forget to go back and we need to go back. We've read blessed are the, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. There's so many times that we've forgotten what blessed means. And I think there's some value in looking at that and doing a word study, even when it's something you thought that you knew what it meant because you've forgotten the full range of the color that's there. God, we thank you that your word is understandable. God, we thank you. I thank you for the beauty and diversity and accuracy of the English translations. God, thank you for the scholars that have done innumerable hours of work to produce what we have and that you have preserved what you have preserved, that we can know with certainty what we can know with certainty. God, would you continue to guide scholars uh, in the English language as they produce translations in the future, pastors to be accurate, me to accurately handle the word of truth and not be ashamed? Um, God, uh, translators that are working in the languages that do not have Bibles, that they might accurately convey concepts and not, uh, not fall prey to these fallacies here as they translate things, God, and people as they study things as they're learning. Thank you for your grace and the gentle way in which you direct us. God, would you illumine our hearts and minds as we study your word that we might know you, worship you, and live for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.